Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. I want to uh, tell you quickly about a thing that I have been working on. It's a new podcast. It's called Heaven's Gate. You might remember Heaven's Gate from the clips on TV. 39 people found dead in a San Diego mansion in uniforms, purple shrouds, and black Nikes. People who believed they'd been taken to heaven in a UFO. There's actually way more to the story than that. And the podcast is hosted by this guy, Glenn Washington. He also hosts Snap Judgment. And he talks to people who lost loved ones, uh, people who still believe in the cult, to unravel why the tragedy happened. Whatever you think you know, prepare to be surprised. Glenn uh, actually grew up in a cult himself. If you've heard his other show, Snap Judgment, you know he's an incredible storyteller. And this is a uh, particularly interesting story for him to be telling. So I really hope you check it out. You can subscribe to this new podcast, Heaven's Gate, wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Also supporting the show this week, Squarespace. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website in just a few clicks. Squarespace's analytics help you grow in real time. And if you ever have a question, they've got award-winning 24-7 customer support. Think it, dream it, make it, with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And one last note before we actually get started, uh, I'm going to be doing a live show, live episode, on Sunday, November 12th in the fine city of Chicago. It's going to be at the hideout at 3 p.m. It's part of the Fest, which is a collaboration of WBEZ and Third Coast. And I'm going to be interviewing Zoe Chase from This American Life. I'm really looking forward to it. Tickets are on sale now. There's a link in the show notes. Here is the program. Hey, and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with the Atavist's own Evan Ratliff, Long Forum's Max Linsky. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Aaron. Pumped up. What are you pumped up for? Pumped up about this episode. I talked to Patricia Bosworth. Wait, 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 wait. Hold the phone. Evan, we've been talking about you not plugging your stuff on the show. What's the newest out of the story? I've never been a big plugger, Aaron, but- you, You, I give you the lane to plug and you will not merge. But we do have a new story, Atavis Magazine story. It's called Some Mother's Boy. It's about the attempt to identify a body that was found almost 100 years ago. Uh, it's a really great mystery. You can find it at magazine.atavist.com. 
This week on this show, uh, I talked to Patricia Bosworth. Have have we had a biographer on the show before? I was thinking about it. I think uh, we have not. We probably have ri- had people who have written biographies. Certainly like, we've had people who have written But no one would be like, I am a biographer. Yes. She is a biographer. Um, she is a well-known biographer. She's also uh, been a journalist. Uh, she did work at the Actors Studio. She was on Broadway. But she is best known as a biographer, and she is best known for her biography of Diane Arbus, uh, which was licensed for the Nicole Kidman movie about Diane Arbus. And she also uh, has a new book out, which is an autobiography, uh, which talks about a lot of people that she encountered in the 20th century, many of whom are quite famous, some of whom she is related to. What's the name of that biography? Uh, The Men in My Life. Autobiography. Autobiography. I've not listened to this one. I'm excited. I was here just when you were like setting up the studio. Yeah. And she seemed, she told like, Three great stories in those. She's like, a she's a great advertisement for our longstanding discussion about whether we should just have the studio on when people walk in. Um, because yes, I would say we lost two of her three uh, best stories before we even started rolling. But the stories we did get are uh, quite incredible, so I recommend this one. Aaron, hear me out on this. I will hear you. Hear this question. Yes. If you had stories that you wanted to tell, how would you do that? I would uh, I would format them in the email format, plain text. Then I'd send them off through MailChimp. Except, actually, I w- it wouldn't be plain text. I would get a nice template and send them in that. I'd get people in, hooked, reading. Uh, and I'd know they'd all been delivered and that I had a reliable provider in MailChimp. They just provide that service, service, service. Thank you, MailChimp. They provide for us as well. Yes, provide for the show. Now here's Aaron with Patricia Bosworth. Welcome, Patricia Bosworth. You have a new book out, but I'd actually like to start sort of further back in okay. your career. Before even we get into your professional writing career, did you have writing ambitions as a young person? I always wanted to write. I started out as an actress, but I sort of had a dual ambition. Yeah. I knew I wanted to write. My mother had been a crime reporter on the call bulletin in San Francisco when I was growing up. Not that she wasn't doing it then, she had become a novelist, but but she was sort of my first inspiration. What led, like how did a woman of your mother's generation become a crime reporter? Well, she too had always wanted to be a writer. It was like in the early 30s in San Francisco, and uh, she was a passionate reader of novels, really, but she also loved journalism, and she was starting out, I think, at the Call Bulletin as a fashion and style reporter, and then somebody got sick in the features department, a guy. She replaced a man, and in those days, you know, it was unusual for a woman to be a reporter on the crime beat, and she started covering murders and would go to crime scenes, and she ultimately wrote a book, a novel called Strumpet Wind, which was... um, based on a a story that she'd covered about a mail-order bride who'd murder her ancient rancher husband because she was in love with some cowboy on his ranch. And uh, it was on the bestseller list for a couple of weeks. It's a fantastic title. (laughs) It's one of the best book titles I've ever heard. You know what it's from? I don't know what it's It's from. It's from a quote in The Tempest, that Shakespeare's (sighs) The Tempest. And 
well, I tell this story in my, in my book that Betty Davis wanted to option it, and my mother met with her, and of course she thought it was going to happen, and then it didn't. <laughs> and my mother was very upset. That's a pretty common experience we hear about right. from journalists on this show, uh, people who think that their uh, article I, is just about to become a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I do have sort of a funny story about Strumpet Wind, because years and years later, when I met Gore Vidal, I don't know what possessed me to ask him if he'd ever heard of a book called Strumpet Wind. He had read it when he was in prep school because he liked the title. I was going to say, that does not surprise me at all <laughs> that Garvidal, a young Garvidal, would have picked up a book called wild? Strumpet Wind. I just Wind. thought it was, and I told yeah. my mother she was thrilled, of course. <laughs> well, you have, looking across your life, uh, you've crossed paths with a lot of famous and influential people from a variety of spheres. Um, your father was a prominent lawyer who worked with a lot of famous actors and was involved with the Hollywood blacklist. Growing up in that environment and coming as a young woman into that environment, where did that leave you in terms of thinking about what should I do with my life? Well, as I say, I'd always had these dual ambitions of wanting to be an actress and also wanting to be a writer because my my heroine was Colette, the novelist Colette, who had been both an actress. In fact, many women like Mary McCarthy was also an actress. There are a number of novelists and writers. Catherine Ann Porter, I think, was also an actress um, and then moved to being a writer. But, you know, I don't know whether I think John Guerra said this to me, that writing is kind of another another kind of performance. But when you're a writer, you get to play all the parts. But I just always wanted to do both. I didn't quite know how, but I always began writing when I was a kid. I had a diary, and I sort of copied my mother. I would go in and sit at her feet as she was writing. I would be scribbling notes in a little pad, and she would sort of tell me, you know, write about what you're seeing, what observing. Uh, and I, I love the actual act of holding a pencil and writing words down and seeing them on the page. But in any event, that's how it began. And at the time you, I mean, you were pursuing acting pretty seriously in your, your newest book, uh, The Men in My Life, which I want to talk more deeply about later. Right. But just to uh, pick up with where your life was at at the time, you were accepted into the actor studio, which I enjoyed that you uh, drew a distinction between the actor studio and the TV show. Inside. Of course, <laughs> everybody makes that confusing. Yes, um, which is, you know, not a lot of people were getting accepted into the actor studio. This is sort of the most exclusive club in the most exclusive theatrical city in the world. I'm interested in what your experience when you're pursuing something that deeply at what point did you start saying, maybe I don't want to be an actress, or maybe this writing thing is more what I want to be doing with myself? Well, I had a long, a long, I mean, I was an actress on Broadway for 10 years, and yeah. I did a lot of television. I did this movie with Audrey Hepburn. I did, did, I did enough work so you would call me a yeah. working actress. But the thing about acting, which is so frustrating, is it's very passive. You cannot control your life. Yeah. In other words, you go up for an audition, and even if you're brilliant in it, you sometimes are rejected. Very often you're rejected. The rejections are hellish and ghastly, at least they were to me. And I got tired of being rejected so much and also tired of not being able to control my life. And as soon as I became a writer, I had this control. I felt more active, more energized. 
But it was a decision that I took a long time coming. I, I actually sold two pieces to New York Magazine. Clay Felker asked me to write about some actors. I actually had been taking notes on my friends. And uh, he published two pieces in New York Magazine. People liked them and gave me the courage to leave acting. I felt I could possibly make a living as a writer. Of course, it took me a long time. One of the dominant themes that I picked up on when you're writing about those years, you were working with people kind of in, in the orbit of the actor studio, uh, Arthur Penn, uh, Ilya Kazan, was that beyond the brilliance, there was a toxicity to the ambition of that scene, um, that it it led to great work, but people were in some ways willing to sacrifice quite a lot personally and put themselves through some pretty hellish stuff. No, that's true. I mean, the, the whole casting couch bit, you were supposed to sleep with whoever, yeah. you know, to move ahead. Uh, the studio, in spite of its brilliance, and it was an unbelievably exciting place. I mean, Kazan used to call it a zoo because it was open 24-7 and we were always working on projects. There was always something very exciting going on. Tennessee Williams was there working, you know, on Baby Doll with Carol Baker and Arthur Miller was there sometimes. Of course, Marilyn Monroe. It was very heady, but there was an atmosphere of, of male chauvinist piggery, as I called it, in that the actresses, we were not treated with the respect that the male actors were. And here there was Jane Fonda, Estelle Parsons, Jerry Page, Anne Bancroft, Shirley Knight, you name it. I mean, really, Lee Grant, great, great actresses, all of whom won Academy Awards. And they were not treated very well. What were your initial forays into writing like? What were the first few pieces that you published at New York Magazine? I published a whole series of pieces. I First, I published two interviews, one with Elizabeth Ashley and another with Sandy Dennis. They were very candid and outspoken. That was another thing that was actually sort of upsetting. I don't think my friends ever thought I'd get this stuff published, so they just talked to me very openly. And in the case of both Liz and, and Sandy, they said some outrageous things. I mean, they don't seem outrageous today, frankly, but they were back then. And I lost them as friends, which was extremely upsetting to me. They were furious at me. They thought that I had betrayed them. This was one thing that I had not considered. I remember Ben Gazzara saying to me, you are not going to be my friend now, Patty, because you're a journalist. You know, you could hurt me. I don't want to see you anymore. I was stunned. Tell me about that first betrayal or that first feeling of betrayal of these initial people you interviewed, did they feel like they had been misquoted or just that you should have protected them by not publishing the things that they said? Well, I think, and I think most good journalists do this, I reveal them as they were. Yeah. Egomaniacs, uh, you know, nonstop talkers about everything, totally self-involved, and I put it on paper. I shouldn't say I was innocent, but These were my first pieces. Later on, I grew to be more careful and reasoned, and I realized that there were certain things I shouldn't say. But, I mean, I can't even remember now what the quotes were that Liz and Sandy objected to. But interestingly enough, everybody who read them said, that's exactly the way they sound. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. If you are ready to start your new business, you can make it stand out with a website from Squarespace. Don't take that from me as some sort of a promotion. I have another business. 
It's a podcast called Stoner. And when I put up Stoner, despite the fact that I'm a noted intermediate beginner web designer with very bad coding skills, I do have some. I still chose to make the website for it on Squarespace because I don't have time to be fidgeting around with making it look good on the iPhone and which template. I just went to Squarespace. They've got a great uh, drag and drop interface. They've got great customer support. And I knew that in the long term, they would support me in my project. So I use them. I encourage you to use them. You can go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your site, use the offer code LONGFORM. You get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM, 10% off, and you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, Squarespace. Here I am back with Patricia Bosworth. Based on what your life was like when you started off as a writer, some of the scenes in this book, you're in a cab with Harry Belafonte and Marilyn Monroe and Ilya Kazan. Um, <laughs> as you became a journalist, your social world must have changed a lot. I assume that people weren't super excited to have journalism come to their parties and, and invade these private spaces. Did your social life and the world you existed in New York change um, as you became a full-time writer? No, because I think that my social life was separate from my journalism. Mm. In other words, if I did a story on, say, Kurt Vonnegut, which I did, that was totally separate from my life my private life, my social life. No, there was no impinging. I I did not, and there are some journalists, I believe, who do. I really kept my journalistic life separate from my private life. The two didn't overlap. Today, except. when um, people, a lot of uh, journalists who've been on this show are assigned to, say, uh, write a profile, access can be limited to one or two hours. Let's take Kurt Vonnegut, for example. Um, at that point, when you were writing a profile of someone, what was expected? Um, how much time were you expected to get with them, access, that kind of stuff? Well, this this was very different. This was the 70s and 80s. I had total access to Kurt. I spent as long as I wanted to with him. It was actually, I think, one of the best interviews I ever had. It was when he was going to be, he decided to be a playwright. And... We talked a lot about the theater. We talked about everything. He was an amazing man, but I had total access to him. Mm. I had total access to everybody during my years as a journalist, but it, it's different now. It's totally different. The control of the press agent is very, very big now. You described that transition from acting into journalism as a transition from passivity to being active, to yes. being in a role you could be active. And I would think of uh, a press agent as uh, someone who thwarts your ability to be fully active in that way and that they're restraining you. As that kind of stuff came in, I'm guessing in the 1990s, things got a little bit more restrictive. Is that something that led you towards doing biographies? Well, I'd started doing biographies. I guess you've been doing them the whole time. <laughs> no, I started doing it in the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that, that made no difference to me. Tell me what um, led to you doing your first biography. Well, I, I wanted to write long form. I mean, I wanted to do something more complete. Mm -hmm. And I had known Montgomery Clift when I was a kid, as I've mentioned in my other book. I've known every one of my subjects, which I think is sort of unusual. Very and I feel very lucky. Yeah. But 
I had never forgotten him. He was at the height of his fame when I first met him, and making Red River, The Search, and Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Taylor. He was beautiful, charismatic, very sort of strange. And I remember he had this hooting laugh and smoked all the time and was talking to my father about politics. But he was at the house a lot, and I, I just never forgot him. And when I was talking to my my late husband, Mel Origi, my second husband, um, about maybe I should move on and, and do more, maybe just something more complete, he suggested that I do Montgomery Clift. When you thought about doing a full-length biography of Montgomery Clift, where were you expecting that that could take you? And like at that time, was there an existing biography of Montgomery no, Clift? No, so this would have this was fresh snow. Yes, yes, it was. I had no idea where it would take me, and it was the most extraordinary adventure, the most extraordinary journey because. I reached his brother, Brooks Clift, who was like the keeper of the flame, and he had all of Montgomery Clift's kind of address books and memorabilia, and he looked up my name, and my name and my father's name were in his Montgomery Clift's address book, and he believed, and truly, that I had known him, and he opened up their life to me, their private life, Montgomery Clift's childhood. He was a twin. His mother was illegitimate. There are all sorts of secret things that nobody knew anything about. And once I learned this, I realized that I was on to some unbelievably interesting story, actually historical story, because his relatives turned out to be one was a Montgomery Blair, Abraham Lincoln's secretary, and his grandfather had been Robert Anderson, who'd commanded Fort Sumter. And now there's even, a, I think, a footnote in a Civil War history about Montgomery Clift. Knowing so many famous people over the course of your life and having written uh, half dozen or more biographies of them, what makes a good subject of a biography? Why choose the people you chose over the dozens of other people who a publisher would have been equally happy to see a biography of? Well, I think every single one of my subjects is an original. If it's Brando, uh, he certainly was revolutionized acting. Uh, Deanne Arbus changed the face of photography. Jane Fonda lived four different lives, maybe five. Every single one of my subjects has been utterly fascinating and, and one of a kind. I knew that I would never get bored. I also thought they were all unique artists in each one of the biographies I tried who explore how they evolve as artists. And it's writing a biography is like solving a mystery. You're always looking for clues. And it's a never-ending process. You have to be very patient. But the end result can be quite amazing. Let's talk about the uh, Arbus biography. Mm. It's probably the best known of your biographies, the basis for um, the movie Fur that starred Nicole Kidman. How many years after um, her suicide did you write the book? She died in 1971, I believe, um, in the late 70s. Okay, so less. I we're began. talking about less than a decade yeah. after her death. Yeah. Um, what was her artistic reputation? When I look at her um, among the all of the biographies that you've done, I see this book as the biggest gamble um, in that I think she could have what did happen, which is that she's still recognized, I would say, as one of the 20th century's biggest photographers, but also 
history could have chosen to not remember her quite as much. Um, where were things standing at the point when you wrote the book? Oh, when I began researching, she had already achieved a great deal of recognition. Right. Uh, John Zarkowski had given her, uh, well, he gave her two shows, but he uh, then was the premier kind of curator of photography, and uh, he had already said that he felt that she was one of the, would be considered one of the most influential photographers of the 20th century. She changed the way people looked at pictures. She uh, she changed the way people looked at subject matter uh, and her, her way of photographing this combination of kind of snapshot technique combined with heroic portraiture had never been done before. I mean, she was really, she was a genius, I think. When I think about her work as opposed, compared to, say, a Brando, you know, Brando is this swaggering person. He's this person who's larger than life, and uh, a million apocryphal stories chase him everywhere he goes. Writing about photography is harder. It's more abstract. Absolutely. Um, It's easier to explain a photograph by showing a person than the photograph than to explain how it was taken or the intentions of the artist. So... What did you see as the big challenges when you took on art writing about Arbus? Well, first of all, I, I wanted to show how she evolved. And I thought I could do that by exploring her worlds. The book is divided into her worlds, which began with the mercantile world that she was born into because her parents owned this department store called Russick's. By the way, I had credible help from her brother, Howard Nemiroff, the great poet Howard Nemiroff, who decided he wanted to help me. And I don't think I could have done the book without him. It's almost a dual biography, because they were brother and sister like twins, very, very close. He knew everything about her. He gave me her journals, which were written in this tiny, minute, so tiny I had to look at the writing through a magnifying glass. He opened up his house to me. I used to go and visit him in St. Louis. The one thing he told me was, don't be an armchair shrink. Just tell the story. In other words, yes, she was a suicide. A lot of people were romanticizing it. He wanted me to get the whole story. And through him, I met all the relatives. I met his mother, their sister, Renee. I, I met everybody in the family except for her daughter did not want me to do the book, so I had a problem there. It was a huge conflict. She didn't want me to do the book. She was very, very much against it. She thought nobody can interpret my mother's life or her f- photographs, and she tried to keep people from seeing me. I had, a, I did have problems with her. When a person who you wanted to interview for a book like that is sort of trapped between the wills of you, who want to know what really happened and say Dune, um, Dune Arbus's yes. daughter who is dead set against the book. How do you represent your intentions? Well, how, how do you tell someone it's important to do this or what do you say the value of participating in a biography well, it, is? It's, if Dune tells somebody they shouldn't speak to me, they won't. There's no way. You, you really can't convince those people mm-hmm. ever. But luckily, I had enough people who wanted very much to talk about her because she was so fascinating, so charismatic, so mysterious. Everybody wanted to know what was I finding out, too, so I could sometimes share information. When um, when Howard Nemiroff asked you not to be an armchair shrink, 
as a biographer, how does one avoid being an armchair shrink? Well, I guess by not making comments, sort of opinions that are sort of pedantic and silly. I don't yeah. know. I, I just wanted the story itself was so fascinating. I felt if I could tell that intensely and completely, it would take care of everything else. I mean, I actually did talk to her, her analyst, uh, <laughs> but the analyst really didn't know that much either. I, I hey, well, that's feel. not being an armchair shrink. That's a professional shrink. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. But I, I'm not good at that. I mean, I, I preferred to find out her her fantasies about Alice in Wonderland and and how she sometimes wanted to photograph a certain person uh, so that it would look like a, a fairy tale. And I, I, I found that kind of thing more interesting. I read your book about your own life, The Men in My Life, and Arbus, like with both open right next to me at the same time, which was an interesting contrast experience. So very naturally in your own book, you'll say, this guy told me to read this novel, but I didn't read it. I was busy reading Mary McCarthy. And here's what I was thinking about while I was reading Mary McCarthy. And I said, oh, okay, that that makes sense. She would know what she was thinking about there. This is her own life. And then I was reading the Arbus book, and occasionally in a biography, you describe what Diane Arbus was thinking about or what she was concerned about. I'm familiar, like, in a New York Times journalism-y way, what are sort of the restrictions on a quote and putting words into people's mouth. But when you're taking someone like Arbus, who is no longer alive, how do you reconstruct someone's thought process? Uh, well, I felt that her marriage to Alan was such an intense, romantic, very emotional kind of relationship that the way I recreated her thoughts, I think, in part, was to talk to her friends who had known her at the time, who spent a great deal of time with her. She, she had some very, very close friendships with people, and I spent hours, hours with these people talking to them about what they would talk about, what, how, how they would behave when they were in, uh, say, at dinner. There was that close friendship she had with Alex Elliott, who became her lover. I mean, that particular relationship, I pieced together, it took me like four years to find out the true, the true story, I don't know whether it's a true story, but I think it is, when they finally went to bed together, everyone had a different version of it. So I literally went to every single person who'd been in the room when they told everybody that they'd slept together. And it took me four years. It's wow. ridiculous. <laughs> so how many hours of interviewing are you doing with the average source for something like this? I mean, if you're getting to like, I need to know what happened at this dinner party when this person announced they slept with each other, you're covering at a very, very uh, high granularity. Well, it's, it's, it's a total and complete immersion and obsessive kind of an, an immersion, for example. I visited Renee Sparkia, Deanne's sister, and her husband in Michigan, and they like to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning to be interviewed. So for the three or four days I was there, I would get up at 4 a.m. in the darkness, begin interviewing them about Deanne and Alan and all the things that happened to them when they were together. And this went on for hours and hours. And the same was true with, with Howard Nemiroff. With Alex Elliott, it was a huge source for me. An amazing man who just, I mean, 
I think Arbus was the most important woman, the most important person his entire life. He, too, was obsessed with her, so he remembered everything from the time they'd met as teenagers right up through near the very end of their lives. Are people withholding of unflattering details? Mm, It's funny. I didn't look for that. I didn't look for unflattering details, but certainly for human details. I mean, Arbus... Arbus was a curious person. She, for example, didn't wear deodorant. She smelled. She had a cracked tooth. She was fascinated by her body, by uh, menstruation, for example. She talked a lot. When she would menstruate, sometimes she was, oh, I'm I'm menstruating. (laughs) This kind of thing, maybe to some people, is repulsive. But I found it utterly fascinating that she would be so interested in her body. And, of course, now it's kind of... uh, normal thing for a woman to talk about her body and to, and to also to be so sexual. Arbus was enormously sexual, obsessed with sex, and had many, many lovers. And I think I say this in the book, uh, at one point, a man, one of her lovers said, aren't you going to ask me about what it was like? To... And I, I, had, I was shy about that. I didn't think that I should ask. To me, it was a very intimate kind of question. But it was so much part of her life, her sexuality, that I felt I, I, I did finally deal with it. But it took me about three years before I did. What was it like writing about your own sexuality and the men in my life? Again, I know that maybe some people think it's still taboo, but I think it's a part of a woman's life to talk about her sexuality. I want, And I wanted to for that reason. In that period, in my 20s, of course this was paramount in my life. I was obsessed and fascinated by it. And I got married when I was 18. And uh, But I didn't feel inhibited about it. Even my editor was a little bit surprised. Really? I, yeah. She felt that perhaps it was too much. I don't think it is, though, do you? I Not at all. I mean, as someone who grew up in a different generation, I think that there can be an alarmism. Actually, I've even seen it in, in magazines like Vanity Fair, where you'll read an article that's oh, hookup culture, it's this brand new thing. Women are having sex with men that they're not in you know, in relationships with. Um, is this going to lead to some sort of an apocalypse? And there's a value to me as a reader to knowing that people have been experiencing these things, these sexual questions for at least decades, if not centuries. And But when I was reading about your experiences in the men in my life, I felt like they could have happened in many different decades. I didn't feel like, oh, this is, you know, an exact 1950s kind of situation. What I did notice was how much works of art, like um, when you describe reading Mary McCarthy in there, could change the consciousness of a young person about how to feel about issues like that. Tell me about what the things that you read during that period about sex, how they uh, influenced you in, in, in your writing. Well, I've mentioned Mary McCarthy. My mother, who also was a very sexual woman and did have affairs, and I I observed them, observed them, meaning I knew that she had other men other than my father. She was the one who suggested that I read Mary McCarthy. And I think at this particular point, maybe it's mid-50s, this particular story, The Man in the Brooks Brothers Suit, where Mary McCarthy writes, and it's it's obviously Mary McCarthy, although it's a fiction. She goes to bed with a stranger on a train, sort of one night, and and it was great. I mean, 
she's a little bit acerbic about it, but uh, I guess what seriously what I got out of it and my friends, my women friends who were reading it was that, yes, maybe you can have a casual experience sexually and it can be liberating and, and enjoyable. You should not necessarily feel guilty about it. Mm-hmm. And this was the thing in those days. I mean, you, you just didn't do that right. at all. In and the then 90s. to do that and then write about it is That's this. right. Uh, and she did exponentially multiplying provocative. Each That's act right. becomes sort of more That's provocative right. than the last. Right. Yeah. When you started approaching your own autobiography, as opposed to these biographies, did you interview people about yourself? I, a few. Yes, I did. I did. I because I didn't remember what I was like. I honestly didn't know, and I did go back and I talked to some actors who remembered me. The thing that staggered me was. They didn't know anything about me. I never talked about anything. I didn't remember that because now I'm much more voluble. I babble about things because I don't feel self-conscious anymore or, or repressed, but I guess back then I did. What was surprising about the impression that they did have? That I had been so elusive, so remote, so I think I was sort of in a daze, but I, I, I wasn't that aware of it. Did you know when you were in that milieu that you were in the center of the universe, or did you no. think, "Oh, I'm just at a, <laughs> I'm at an acting studio"? Well, I, at the studio, yes, I felt yeah. that I wasn't in a very important place at a very important time. But no, I guess I really didn't. Uh, I, as I say in the book, I was in my twenties. I was sort of in a daze. I sort of moved blindly through a lot of stuff, not not aware. Luckily, I did keep it a journal of sorts, so I noted down lots of stuff. I was able to, uh, when, you, when you're writing a memoir, you get to, to sort of hang out with people again that you cared about that are no longer alive. That was both enjoyable and painful for me. What did you find in the process of paring that down and trying to um, turn it into the final well, version? Well, the book really all, you know, the title is The Men in My Life, but it's, uh, it's kind of duval entendre, I guess, in that it's about my brother and my father and their suicides and how uh, after I I lost them, I wanted to move on. And the story is how I moved on, this particular story. And it's re- even more so, it's the story of my brother because my brother, it was such a tragic story, his story and his death, that that was the thing that was the most important to me. And the the whole business of me talking to him in the book, it just happened. One day I was writing and suddenly his voice just came in my ear and I found I was inhabiting him. And this was enormously releasing for me and helpful to me. Yes, it is a device, but it was a device I realized could work, and I don't know where it came from. What has the reaction been like? How how much of that world still exists of the people that are? Oh, a lot. I mean, yeah. there are people. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people still around. They yeah. they remember they remember me. They remember the studio, the way it was in those days. They remember some of them remember me in shows that I were was in. Uh, yeah. It's nice. By and large, people have enjoyed the book. Well. Um, Thank you very much, Patricia Bosworth. That's it? Yeah, thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to the Long Forum Podcast. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you very much to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Angela Velez. Thank you to our incredible sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, and Heaven's Gate. I'm looking forward to checking out that show. I've heard weird snippets of it coming through the wall, but I don't really understand what it's all about. I look forward to it. Uh, We're here every Wednesday with a new episode. Thank you for listening. This has been the Long Form Podcast. Wait, before you go, it's Max. I just want to mention uh, one more time, go check out Heaven's Gate. It's a new podcast where Glenn Washington explores the story behind the mysterious cult, Heaven's Gate. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Okay, now, for real, we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.